0: Welcome to the Ogilvy Podcast, featuring expert conversations and analysis on the complexities of culture, technology, business, and marketing. Ogilvy is a creative network making brands matter across 132 offices in 83 countries. I'm Steve Mudd, your host, marketing strategist, and agent provocateur. It's just a matter of time before every company ends up on the front page, the victim of fake news, cyber attacks, natural disasters, or out of control executives gone wild. The four horsemen of the crisis apocalypse are coming for you. Whether pestilence, war, famine, or death, the challenges companies face are evolving faster than anyone can prepare for today adequately. My guest today, Chris Calland, uh, client partner and head of crisis and issues for Ogilvy UK, has an unnatural love of crisis and a unique view of the trends facing companies. Hi, Chris. How are you today? Hey, Steve. I'm very well. How are you? (laughs) Doing great. Why are you so drawn to crises
1: well, it's because I've always felt it's an area where good communications can have an immediate but also a very tangible and tangibly positive impact on people's experiences. Immediate because you have to communicate in a crisis, you can't leave a vacuum, I mean a silence is a message in itself, um, and whatever you do say becomes part of the story, so, so you can have that immediate impact on a situation. And it can also be tangibly positive because if you get your communications right, then you can actually make a bad situation better. You, know, you can lessen the upset that may have been caused. You can reduce anxiety. And that's critical, not just in protecting the reputation of an organization. It's also important ensuring staff aren't so distracted uh, within a crisis that the organization goes into free fall. Uh, now, of course, the flip side of that is that bad communications can make a bad situation demonstrably worse. Uh, so that's why I think it's so important. It's why I've always been drawn to it and I'm, I'm very passionate about it.
0: And of course for the intro, I, I completely stole your analogy of the Four Horsemen. Um, who are the Four Horsemen? Can you g- give us some examples of what those crises are?
1: Yes, of course. It's a, it's a deliberately uh, dramatic uh, mnemonic, a melodramatic mnemonic perhaps. Um, but I devised it because I found that many organizations I spoke to thought that crises were something that happened to other people, and to other organizations. You know, very often there can be uh, an element of denial within an organization about the crises that they face. Um, and I remember a client I was uh, managing a crisis for once said to me, uh, well, it's not the end of the world, is it? Um, and it got me thinking about the end of the world um, and about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as you do. Um, and actually it got me thinking, what were the ways that you could bucket up crises? in a way that was memorable, that made sense to organizations, um, and that they may never really have thought of before. So so just to explain the four horsemen, um, obviously we had pestilence, uh, war, famine, uh, and death. But just to take each one in, in turn. Um, what I mean by pestilence, I actually mean anything that could go viral. So that might be a health emergency, for example, an outbreak of food poisoning or some other form of disease um, which of course is a real risk to organizations that are based perhaps on a large campus with thousands of people or if they're uh, based in very challenging uh, natural environments Um, or indeed it could be a computer virus that you face Uh, essentially i'm talking about something that you might not actually have that much control over and you're playing catch-up on Uh, the second horse and then war um, let's of course hope that real wars don't continue to break out But the sad reality is that many organizations do face the threat of cyber attacks, or indeed a a terrorist attack, Um, or to a lesser extent, it might even be direct action by a pressure group, say over an organization's environmental record or tax affairs. Um, The type of hostile action in that situation, it's not just a comms issue, it's an operational issue. So I always say to organizations, do they have the business continuity plans in place for those sort of contingencies? And even when they do, do they have the communications plans in place? Um, So what what really what organizations actually need, they need holistic plans which factor in every sort of link in the chain. Um, So, for example, if if your property is targeted, if you're a company and your, your premises are targeted, well, do your front of house staff know to alert the press office? Um, What if all your landlines and your emails go down? Do you have a way of contacting your comms team? Um, Do you have protocols in place if hostile media start doorstepping you? And I always think actually, the reason I use the the war analogy is that the military often provides a good sort of um, uh, comparison here. Uh, As an aside, I should say, I'm usually quite wary of military comparisons because there's often a lot of macho posturing uh, that goes with it, but I think it's, it's relevant here because um, if you think of what the military do during peacetime, uh, you know, militaries plan for as many eventualities as they can. They plan to come under attack and crucially they rehearse. They have regular exercises. And there's two reasons for that. First of all, you get to stress test your plans. But second, you also build muscle memory within an organization so that when it happens for real, it's familiar. It's not totally unexpected and people aren't suddenly thrown off by it. So I would advise that if you're an organization with uh, the, the prospect of some sort of attack, um, you need to plan, you need to rehearse, you need to have those clear lines of command and control. Um, and actually, I'd go even further. I'd, I'd say that large organizations need to, to mirror the sort of command structures that you often see in the military and emergency services where you have a bronze, silver, gold command, etc. cetera. Anyway. Um,
0: well, and, and I, was, I was very struck um, You know, in in your opening comments, you mentioned the staff distraction, how easy it is for your own employees to be distracted by whatever the crisis is and not focus on what they have to do. I mean, I'm curious how much of your work revolves around keeping the staff under control versus keeping the external crisis under control.
1: It's a huge part of it. I think, yeah, proper crisis and issues management has to be thinking about the internal communications uh, just as much as the external because the danger of course actually is that an organization thinks in a crisis that it is simply managing its, its external reputation and it's simply trying to control what messages go to the media but actually no you might find that the workforce is concerned about what is happening and they're distracted by what is happening um, they might start to make um, decisions because of the stress or the anxiety or the uncertainty around the situation so internal comms has to be absolutely part of, of of any proper crisis issues management and and the way that you do that is that you need to involve all the relevant decision makers within your sort of crisis team so it's not just about having comms people you've got to have operational people there you've got to have hr involved legal internal comms thinking about all the different bits of, a, of an operation internally so that you don't do you know a good job with the outside world but then find that all your employees think something really bad happened
0: i think there's um at least from some of the companies i've worked for or with there's there's always an internal cynicism i think when you know where the bodies are buried and you know where your company's weaknesses can be and so it's able to ad- address those things in times of crisis I think it's important too.
1: I think so. And I think this is where the value of external counsel comes in because if you do have people who are who are having to make decisions but they ultimately might um, they might feel vulnerable because they might feel are they going to get in trouble um, because of decisions they've taken um, that can that can impair the decision making process. So I think very, very valuable to have that external counsel. Um, but at the same time, yes, you do need the people internally who, who do know where the, where the bodies are buried, as it were. And, um, and one of the first things that, that we always do when, when talking to clients during a crisis or ahead of a crisis or you know, when, when planning is we ask those very direct questions. We say, look, we need to know um, what, what are the, uh, the, the sort of the skeletons in the closet here?
0: Um, and I, I took us down a different path. Did we cover two horsemen or four, three? Or? We
1: did, we did. Yeah. So, uh, so the third horseman is famine. Um, so what I mean by that is a, a lack of resources. Um, so if you think about it, that could be a, a service failure, a supply chain failure, a product recall. Um, now, in my experience, I found often these are often treated as unforeseen events, but actually, you can plan for them. You know, organizations should ask themselves very honestly, what are the things that could go wrong? You know, what are the things that would keep them up at night? I, the number of times I've asked chief executives, you know, what, what's your biggest worry? And at that point, they'll admit, oh, yes, there's a part of our supply chain that we think is a bit a bit weak. Well, if you know that, you should be planning accordingly. Um, because, you, because you can. You know, if you can anticipate what's going to happen, then you can work out the various mitigation steps that you, you need to put in place. So organizations should be thinking about what if they've run out of certain things? You know, so if you're in the automotive industry and you're operating on just-in-time supply chains, um, if you're in the healthcare sector and a supply chain issue actually could endanger life because it might mean drugs not getting to a patient on time. Uh, so do you, know, do you have the stockpiles? How long do they last for? And do your comms plans factor in these things? And Do they factor in how long it might take to resolve these issues? So these sort of things can, you know, can be planned for. And then the fourth and final horseman, uh, quite, quite dramatically, um, is death. Now, very sadly, of course, there are instances where, where deaths occur within an organization. Uh, so that might be an industrial accident, or if you're a healthcare provider, it could obviously uh, be the result of the treatment that you've provided to someone in your care. The key thing here, I would say is, uh, and again, this is applicable to, to all of these, but I can't stress it enough, is the need to be human. Now, that that might sound very obvious. Um, But remember, if a death has occurred within an organization and and that organization is somehow connected to it or feels responsible for it, it's very possible that people will be in shock, that people will be in denial. Very often, organizations can get very defensive in in those situations. And because of that, they start hiding behind very formal language, even jargon. Um, Because psychologically, that provides a bit of a shield. But unfortunately, that's, that's the exact opposite of what you should do. You need to speak with a human voice. Uh, so, for example, whilst I can't obviously name the organizations, I, I've worked with, I can think of one organization in particular where tragically someone had committed suicide. And in the statement that was released, the organization said that they were shocked because it was shocking. And it was the right thing to do to acknowledge that, to not try and belittle it or hide behind. Uh, language. So um, so I think it's very, very important to strike a human tone um, and the one final thing I'll say with regards to death as well is it, it may of course be that a, a founder or a leader of an organization dies, uh, perhaps someone who is no longer connected with the business. But, uh, but of course when that happens, even if it was expected, um, that can raise all sorts of questions about succession planning, about their legacy, uh, how the business is now going to change, Uh, So, at the very least, those sort of instances can focus the media's attention on an organization. As I say, even when the the person hasn't been associated with them for some time. So, I always say it's it's worth factoring that into crisis plans as well.
0: I'm I'm reminded of some events in my career. I used to work for the power company um, for many years. And in the electricity business, death is almost inevitable. Um, it's, it's dangerous work. And, you know, there's people climbing poles, and there's um, uh, you know nuclear facilities. You have all of these you know big industrial things that um, you can have the best safety practices in place consistently, and there's still going to be an accident eventually, unfortunately. And, and I remember we had an exact uh, an accident where. Um, we had some contractors who were working on, on cleaning a large pipe, and, and they had ignited some fumes in there, and they were all killed. And it was, it was just heartbreaking. It's a heartbreaking feeling for the whole company. And these weren't even people who worked with us. They weren't employees, but you know, they were still part of our company family. And I, I always felt like some of the language that we used to communicate, some of it was overly... Uh, legal, you know, it almost felt like they were trying to balance the the legal issues that might be in play along with the human issues. But um, I'm curious how that language and even how, what do you, I feel like you have to be more human now than maybe companies tried to be 10, 20, 30 years ago.
1: I think that's that's very true. And I think um, you've touched upon one of the reasons why often companies, can end up with very uh, legal language and that's because of course they're, they're getting legal advice which may be telling them to not use any particular form of words that might admit liability that might somehow have uh, have implications for uh, for them from a, from a, a litigation perspective uh, and of course the answer to, to sort of trying to, to solve that issue is that PR and legal advice do have to be working hand in glove you've of course got to make sure that everything is being centre-checked properly, that, isn't, that it isn't gonna cause uh, bigger issues. Um, but I, I do find often you know, that the legal teams, of course, for natural reasons, will be very, very risk averse. Um, so I think it's important to inject that, that more human element in it. And think about what would you want to hear if, you know, if your loved ones uh, died or, or uh, suffered in some way from some sort of industrial accident or something that was happened on company time, on company property you wouldn't want to hear something that talked about facilities and incidents. You'd want to hear something that talked about um, employees and people and lives uh, and that you felt they were actually valued as as human beings. So um, I think that there's a sort of creative tension that sits at the heart of it. But I do think it's changed um, a lot in recent years. And I I think a large part of that has been the the rise of social media, meaning that what may have been a story that's that well-reported, wouldn't have traveled around the world that quickly, actually now very, very quickly um, it's available to millions and millions of people. And not only that, but they can then start to comment on that story, share that story with others. Um, And I think that injects more of an urgency to to really connect with people on, on much more of a human level.
0: I think that's accurate too. There's almost a sense where the corporate giants of the past could almost whitewash things that had happened. Oh, with, with a nice statement, and, you know, no one was going to dig deeper. But now it's possible you could have someone who f- filmed whatever happened on their camera and then all of a sudden it ends up on YouTube. And so you have this corporate narrative up against the, so- the social narrative that's very raw and real and true. And um, companies have to be able to adapt to that or be ready for that.
1: Absolutely. Well, this is it. Now, you know, we often say everybody's a journalist now. You you've got in your pocket a smartphone that, as you say, you could be recording footage that that will end up being shared around the world. It'll end up being uh, played by uh, traditional respected media outlets as well. How often do we see that within minutes of something happening? uh, The news channels will have footage that someone's filmed on their smartphone. Um, So, and I think actually this is something I was reflecting on the sort of how crises have over sort of the last decade, Um, and I think undoubtedly it it is connected to the the rise of social media. Um, I actually think there's sort of three quite profound um, changes that that we've seen. So in terms of crisis management, so first of all, speed of response is is more important than ever. Um, Now, of course, 24-hour news has actually been with us for some time, Um, but the rise of social media means that it's just traveling so fast, of course, not necessarily being validated or fact-checked by by editors. It's just traveling like wildfire. Um, So organizations have to be able to respond very, very quickly. Now, Um, the second thing related to that, I'd say the the proliferation in the number of channels that you have to communicate through. Um, So it's not simply about issuing a press release and handling phone calls. You know, you may have dozens of own channels Um, which not only need to reflect the tone and the messages for your outbound comms, but you also need to be prepared for how you're going to respond to inbound questions and comments. And you need to know who's responsible for managing that and how are you tracking and evaluating that. And then thirdly, I think um, stories which would have been a bit of a business page story or would have appeared lower down the news agenda, uh, they now do get a, a wider airing. Um, and I think, I think social media is part of that. I think journalists will often go looking for information which adds color. Um, and if that means they can find uh, that, that content online on social media um, and it can add an additional level of detail, you know, one of the things I I'll always say to, to clients is they should really check their own social media footprint um, because I've seen this done where uh, perfectly responsible people have... Uh, who were running an organization, have ended up in a a difficult situation. And unfortunately for them, uh, there is a photograph of them on Facebook uh, quaffing champagne that was taken at someone's birthday party. But that's the photo that the newspaper uses on its front page uh, to put alongside a story about the failings of a particular organization. Um, So again, social media has provided a rich sort of uh, mine of, of content Um, that can really color stories in ways we wouldn't traditionally have
0: seen. Yeah, I think I've seen, uh, you know, so I'm I'm based in Denver, Colorado. Um, We've had high profile incidents of school violence and things. And um, there's, there's this interesting time period where they release the perpetrators, the suspect's name, And I think people are rushing to their Facebook pages and their and their Twitter feeds, and the media gets there first. I think Facebook has um, some methodology to go in and eventually shut that down, or people shut down their accounts. But there, um, yeah, there there is that need to find the the pictures that demonstrate the story that the media wants to tell.
1: I I think I think uh, uh, perhaps not not all media organizations. I'm sure there's many uh, uh, many more uh, respectable. Outlets that would um, that would take a bit more of a measured view, but but undoubtedly there are plenty of uh, of, of less um, cautious uh, outlets who who that's exactly it. They want something that um, is sensational. They want something that is going to be shared and liked. Um, that is ultimately going to drive uh, revenue for for them if they're a commercial news organization. I I don't criticize them for that. That's that's their business model. That's the the name of the game. But it, it does underline the point that organizations need to be thinking in terms of how are they reputationally vulnerable, not just in terms of something that goes wrong, but then, okay, what are the other things that could be drawn into the story to make it appear even worse?
0: So I'm curious, um, you know, we, we have our own flavor of ex- exploitative journalism in the United States. Certainly um, the U.K. is famous for certain amounts of, of uh, uh, interesting journalism. How, do, how does crisis play out differently in the U.K. and Europe as opposed to the U.S.? Or um, I, I can't imagine the Chinese media works the same way that our media does.
1: Yeah, I think there's there's undoubtedly differences between different uh, countries, different regions of the world. Um, I think the caveat here is that uh, the way in which a crisis will play out in a particular region, it it will depend very much on the nature of that crisis. Um, Indeed, some things might be perceived as a crisis in one country, but not another. Um, So, for example, I've worked with a lot of companies on change management, and that can often involve uh, consulting on redundancies um and i can think of of a few companies where who i've worked with where the announcement of job losses or potential job losses was met with absolute shock by media in the uk and in europe but was actually perceived uh, by media in the united states as simply quote unquote right sizing uh, so the the sort of the, the um but the sort of the larger point actually is that I think uh, any organisation, anyone engaged in, in crisis and issues management, has to be mindful of uh, both the the local uh, legal framework because there there will be uh, if you take redundancies for example, the way in which you can consult on on possible redundancies is very different in the US compared to the UK compared to Germany. Um, the local legal framework is always important, but also the local culture. Um, and I found that very often it's, it's also linked to whether an organisation is in the public or private sector, uh, as to as to what the sort of perception will be of a particular crisis or issue. So in the, in the UK, the National Health Service is a much-loved national institution. Um, you know, for American listeners, it's perhaps similar to how the US military is perceived in in the states in many ways. Um, and because of that, the NHS, if it's ever involved in a crisis, then it's often not the NHS that gets the blame, but the politicians, or, or somebody else who was sort of involved in it. Um, whereas a private healthcare company in the UK, and I, I've worked with many, where they could have exactly the same issue or crisis, but they will not be given the benefit of the doubt in the same way that the NHS is. Um, similarly, in, you know, in China, there's often greater deference state institutions compared to foreign-owned companies. Um, Indeed, I've, I've seen in the US and European media, actually being often suspicious of foreign companies when in a crisis. Um, now, the take-home point there is obviously about having as much reputational credit in the bank, as it were, um, and also having proper comms in place, which which avoids creating an impression of secrecy, say, when it might actually be that you're just not used to, to uh, handling lots of uh, diverse media attention. Uh, but there's a flip side to it as well, I think, because Often, one country's media will only focus on a crisis affecting their country and not really follow stories elsewhere. So, so that's a sort of an added factor. And then, just to complicate things even even more, um, there are now many more global media outlets, and they will be the ones that follow stories around the world so compared to national outlets. Um, so, to answer your question, yes, there are there's undoubtedly differences. Um, but I think the way to navigate those differences is, as like I say, being being culturally appropriate and aware, and being clued up on, on the local legal uh, and political uh, situation.
0: It's interesting, and I'm I'm a, a writer, storyteller by by trade, by nature, and and you think about there are these long term narratives that are spun, whether by the media or by society, and sometimes a crisis is an opportunity to plug you know, a, a new instance into that story to say, see that, you know, those those companies are still greedy or, you know, the, the health system is still inefficient or the government is good or bad. So it does kind of depend on the shared perception of the narrative in whichever country you are. I think that that's a fascinating idea.
1: I think it really does. And I, I, this plays to, um, one of the things we, we often do with companies is a, a reputational risk audit when we first begin working with them um and we will factor in um issues like that you know, it might well be that if you are a company from a certain country uh, or if you are in the public sector versus the private sector that there's certain baggage that might come with that through no fault of your own but you need to be prepared that if something does go wrong it will be used as a proof point in a larger narrative of how this particular sector isn't working or this particular country uh, doesn't have the, the, the rigorous regulation that it should. So um, I do think that com- companies have to be, and uh, public sector and charitable organizations as well actually have to be aware of that of that broad cultural political context.
0: So what do you think companies are going to face tomorrow that they haven't thought about today?
1: I think the biggest issue that we're starting to learn more about, but we've not really seen, is the rise of, of deep fakes uh, targeting corporates. Um, I'm sure some listeners will have seen uh, there's been lots of stuff shared on, on LinkedIn. There's a few good videos you can watch of, of how uh, Oscar speeches have been doctored and different actors' faces have been sw- swapped with others, and uh, mock news reports. Um, and of course there's been a lot of talk about fake news and misinformation in terms of uh, allegations surrounding be it the u.s presidential election or the brexit referendum in the uk but we've not really seen that happen to corporations yet um, and if you think of everything we've been talking about it it's all been about managing a real world crisis but what if you're being bombarded with media inquiries and online criticism something that isn't even true you know what if if that was coupled with a sophisticated cyber attack, it, indeed the future of uh, of warfare, without being too dramatic, it could, it could well involve companies being disrupted like this, uh, because a state actor might think, well, actually we can inflict lots of chaos and confusion, potentially even some casualties, without having to embark in any sort of military action. We can just target a number of uh, very large companies um, and, and have an impact that way. So. Unfortunately, the technology exists to create these very sophisticated fake news reports, doctored video footage, doctored press conferences and speeches, which could travel around the world in, in minutes and could well convince people that a particular organization, a particular company has done something terrible when nothing of the sort has happened. Um, now, for me, that underlines the, the absolute importance of having proper plans, proper capabilities uh, in place.
0: That's so interesting. I, you think about, uh, you know, dropping leaflet leaflets during times of war, you know, to try to convince the enemy that you're good and their leadership is bad. And in some ways, I I kind of scoff at the idea that oh, I might pick up a leaflet and all of a sudden believe that, you know, my my local power structure is corrupt. But if I saw a video and. You know, it tied in with the leaflet, and it tied in with something I saw on social media. Um, that would take quite a bit of coordination and creativity on, on behalf of the bad actors.
1: It would, it would, but sadly, there's um, there's a lot of, uh, of bad actors out there who are uh, who do have the, the time and the resources and the creativity to um, to do that. As I say, at the moment, we've only really seen it targeted. At, at states, really, and at you know at elections and referendums, and allegations of all sorts of things. Um, but actually, uh, if you really wanted to um, disrupt a company, that's why I, uh, uh, I make the point as well: is it might be a state actor behind it um, because they might be doing it for a a bigger geopolitical reason. Um, but actually, the, the the terrifying thing is, of course, that this technology is now. Um, relatively freely available. Um, and so the, the sort of barriers to entry for undertaking that sort of action now are far lower than they, than they ever have been, um, which is why I think actually it needs, it needs to be factored in and considered as, a, uh, as a, a, a very possible threat.
0: Is there a scenario that the deepfake technology could be used for good
1: Gosh, what a great question! What a great—that's almost a sort of moral philosophical question, isn't it? Like, how could 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 deepfake, could lying and subterfuge uh, be for good? Well, I suppose it could um, if you think of um, examples within actual within previous conflicts where uh, there's been a degree of of, of subterfuge which has has saved lives. Actually, I mean, I can think of um, uh, there's there's stories that during the second world war where uh, there was misinformation campaigns to um, convince uh, nazi forces that there were thousands of troops uh based in different parts of britain uh, when actually they weren't there at all but the whole point was to, to try and fend off an invasion at certain points um there was one wonderful story where a, 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 a in the middle of the night when there was a bombing raid uh, coming over the um a, a sort of miniature uh, reconstruction of a, of a fishing harbor was created and floated out to sea and when the bombers saw the lights in the dark they thought there we go there's the there's the port we'll drop the bombs and of course it just bombed a, a fake port so um i wouldn't be surprised if uh if people find a way to actually um use that sort of disinformation uh to uh, perhaps to to thwart um a particularly nasty regime or a, or a hostile group but um, but I'd have to have a bit more of a think about how, how we can maybe do it
0: Well it, of course it gets into more of an existential crisis as pretty much all we do in advertising and marketing is try to change perceptions from their natural state to something that's in favour of our clients Perhaps we need an ethics board or something to stay abreast of these things
1: Well I'm stuck still- I'm sure we do have, I'm sure we do. <laughs>
0: um, okay, brass tacks, what, what do companies need to do to get ready for the four horsemen?
1: So I think there's three things uh, that companies need to do. Uh, map, plan, and simulate. Uh, so when I say map, uh, they need to map their possible vulnerabilities. Um, they should be interviewing the key people who hold the relevant knowledge, uh, I would advise you then workshop that through to actually work out if you're worrying about the right things, do you have knowledge gaps, do you have plans in place, what do you need to improve. Um, And I'd also say that mapping should not be a one-off, indeed you should be, I would always advise you should be regularly monitoring for not just mentions of your organisation, but actually for what other crises there are that are affecting your sector. Um, Or indeed, crises affecting other companies, other organizations in other sectors, but who are perhaps similar to you and that you could learn lessons from. So, mapping is the first thing. Then, when I say plan, I'm talking about writing down proper protocols that explain to people who will use them what they need to do in a crisis. Um, And they need to be user-friendly. There is no point having a 100-page plan sitting on a shelf that no one reads. Uh, So, you need to have easy-to-follow escalation procedures uh, it needs to be very clear very concise and it should be in a format that is optimized for the people who are going to use it so you know for example rather than a, a written document can it be an app you know rather than uh, relying entirely on uh, printouts of things that people have to have could you have things displayed around uh, an organization on the walls using color using imagery um, to make it a lot clearer um, so planning is the second thing then the third thing um, simulate, I think organizations should run crisis simulations regularly. Um, and I think um, there's, there's a couple of reasons for that, actually. One is that they're a very good way of inducting new team members. If you think about it, if you're sort of onboarding people uh, into an organization, well, a uh, crisis simulation could be part of that very easily. Um, but I'd also advise holding them at least annually um, because they create, what I said earlier, they create muscle memory for when the worst happens. Um, so map, plan, simulate, but crucial to all of that is having the right people involved at every stage. You need the senior decision makers. You need the people who will actually be the ones who are going to be in the room making decisions in a real world crisis.
0: What sort of crises should we expect in the advertising industry, in the PR industry? What simulations well, think,
1: should we run? Oh, I think we're already seeing it actually um, across the sort of the the wider Marcoms uh, industry, I think quite rightly, there is a lot of attention upon um, who are the types of clients that agencies are working for um, and can those relationships be justified um, in different markets on on ethical grounds. Um, uh, Also, what about the behavior and the practices of organizations Uh, over the last year or so, it's been remarkable to see the shift in in uh, sentiment actually around the Me Too movement, um, with Time's Up coming out of um, of Hollywood, I think that is is quite rightly um, making people ask a lot of questions about uh, about agencies and an entire sector that they may not have thought about and that you know that might still be um, not that much in that in the limelight because of course we do a lot of the stuff sort of behind the scenes to to promote our clients. So um, I think we're going to face a lot more of that sort of attention. I think that's a good thing. I think um, transparency helps organizations, Um, but I think that sort of transparency and uh, critical attention is only going to grow and it'll uh, move from one sector to another. We'll be looking at, at not just marcoms, but I think broader professional services uh, Will all come under uh, increasing scrutiny. I also think, um, as there's been more of a, a focus on um, on gender, um, particularly over sort of the, over the last year, I think other uh, uh, issues uh, of identity are going to come to the fore. Um, and I think, again, quite rightly, organisations are going to be asked, you know, what what are their plans? What do they do to um, uh, encourage people to feel? that they can succeed, to break down barriers, uh, to ensure that they're, that they're open um, and, and enjoyable uh, and professional places to work.
0: Chris, I suspect uh, you and I could talk for two or three hours. Um, this has been tremendous. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. My pleasure. We'll have to do it again. Yeah, most definitely. Well, let's wait till there's a crisis and then we'll jump right in and kind of do a live feed of, of the world's crisis. There we go. There we go. Oh, agreed. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks so much. Um, and thanks to all of our listeners of the Ogilvy Podcast, smart people saying smart, pithily, quotable things. I'm Steve Mudd, your host, marketing strategist, agent provocateur. Join us next time when we explore how artificial intelligence will be used to name future royal babies. Until next time.